Hey there, and welcome to Legion of Misfits. My name is Rich. The purpose of this show is to help listeners as much as possible to connect to their worth through stories and other ideas, because in this world, it feels like at times it's doing everything possible to force us to believe the opposite. When the truth is, wherever any one of us is at, we really are doing the best we can with wherever our mindset is, with whatever tools we have at our disposal in any moment. Sometimes those tools are powerful, other times, not so much. It's exactly where we need to be, and we're doing fine even if it doesn't look like it. So with that, I welcome you, and let's get into it. What is grief if not love persevering? Vision. This episode of Legion of Misfits is called Love Persevering because of what may still be my favorite line from WandaVision. We're going to explore some around grief in this episode and share some ideas and stories inspired by the grief journeys of myself and of others. It feels appropriate personally as myself, and I'm recording this in mid-April of 2022, I am approaching the 12-year anniversary of my own mom's passing. In some ways, it feels like 12 years, while in others, it feels just like the other day. I also seem to be pulling in people around my spheres that are really struggling with being heard and acknowledged in their own grief experiences and I want to offer them in some small way an opportunity to feel seen where they're at and for them to know that there is not judgment that matters from within or without. There is no race to heal and we never fully do anyway. However, you need to show up is how it needs to be and you have every right to feel the way you feel for as long as you need to feel it and... Absolutely nobody is owed any explanation. Someone else has an issue that gets to be their gift for themselves to explore why. I really hope you see that. Not too long after my mom passed, maybe three or four months after, someone made a comment that I just needed to get the hell over it and move on already. And some years later, following a painful loss of their own, they came up to me and said, I get it now. That night back then, I'm really sorry. I've seen this show up for people in a few different spaces over the last several weeks where people were posting or talking about how someone had told them some degree of, well, you just move on already? When it comes to mourning the loss of a loved one, a spouse, partner, parent, child. And the truth is, Before my mom passed, I probably would have asked the same question. Grief isn't a thing you can fully know until you know. Until then, you just don't know. And for the most part, when people make comments like that, they tend to come from one of a couple different places. One is that they've never personally experienced major loss up close, and they really just don't understand Deep grief is not something you can really explain to someone in a way that they can truly get just by hearing someone else's stories or by watching someone else's experience. That raw, deep, intense longing and pain, and sometimes it literally is physical pain. It is so intense and so excruciating that words just can't fully articulate it. It's why so often in grieving spaces we connect to art or film or music or poetry. Sometimes creative art can get to the places our words really cannot. For others, I suspect that there are some who see others openly feeling and exploring their grief and It may mirror back things to their own life events and they're not willing to experience that depth of feeling or pain. Maybe they've never fully allowed themselves to truly feel their loss or they're afraid of what they might find when they go in there. Also, it can be a thing in many circles that 
still looked down upon. And I'm thinking of men in particular with this, but it's not, of course, exclusive. It's expected for many that we just flip on the switch and go back to work or family or whatever and just abracadabra, life is back to normal. Of course it isn't and it never will be, but put on the show, we pretend. And sometimes we can create some pretty good denial bubbles when we want to. Seriously, and if something gets mirrored back at us that we do not, under any circumstances, want to open any sort of Pandora's box around, we'll lash out at the person who in our mind is creating the threat, which really sucks. Of course, life does move on somewhat, and we continue to achieve and succeed and love and play and all of those things. We do continue to build... However, we can't rebuild the place where we felt the loss. No matter what we try to use to bury it, hide it, deny it, soften it, talk ourselves out of it, talk ourselves into it, where we had love ripped away from us, that gaping hole just stays there. We adjust to it. Maybe we cry a little less each day. And we have less of those painful moments and we can learn to feel both joy and sadness at the same time we really get to feel all the things in that spectrum gradually the only thing we're able to do is build around the hole and give it all the love that it needs and we do we continue on with life and it gets to still be magical and powerful and all that good stuff over time we find new and renewed love and inspirations this process gets lined up with death so often, of course, but we mourn and we feel grief over so many different areas of life. Leaving or being fired from a job, graduation from school, losing friendships, moving, divorce and breakup, fallings out with family, on and on. And in each of these, even if it's something we want to have happen or something that needs to happen, it can be hard. Even the good major life changes can be a struggle. Many of us have a really hard time with change, especially when it's forced upon us in some major way. I mean, look around the last couple of years. It all gets to be incorporated. The love, the memories, and the pain. The beauty is that every so often, we can feel the love we lost and the new pieces we built. And in little ways... We get to keep them with us in our journeys. And with that, let's move into it. I'm going to share with you a piece I wrote in 2020. This is not too long after the pandemic started. Paying attention to how people were responding even back then. And making the connection that it wasn't really much different to grieving anything else. You can still see a lot of these stages floating around even today. You can fill that in. As I say a lot, whichever direction you go in, you're probably at least somewhat right. And the name of this piece is Grieving Our Control. There are moments in life when it's all turned inside out. What is real becomes unreal. What is unreal becomes tangible. And all your level-headed efforts to keep a tight control are rendered silly and indulgent. Quote from Alexander Heman from The Lazarus Project. That's really where we are in a lot of ways, isn't it? Many of us have had our entire existence as we knew it upended. While that looks different to each of us, it's still the truth. Of course, there's the obvious fears over our impending health, especially for those who are considered to be high risk for dangerous repercussions should this virus find them. There are those in the service industry, gig workers, the self-employed, and others who have had their incomes stripped away overnight and are trying to figure out how the rent gets paid. Those trying to juggle working from home, homeschooling their kids, and other aspects that come from the progression of life as normal to we'd really like for you to stay isolated right now to stay the fuck home. Yeah, there are those heading off to work as normal because they are essential to keeping society somewhat afloat, but even there, a new normal's in place. Overloaded with demand and often being undermanned, undersupplied, underprotected from the different onslaughts that they are manning the front lines against. 
plus what other landmines are out there that we have yet to face. All of these scenarios, which have or will affect us all at some point, represent situations where just days ago we swore we had control over, things that we assumed were going to stay business as usual until they weren't. Makes one wonder if these were things we truly had control over in the first place. Was it all just an illusion? If so, then what does it all mean? What do we do? Can we even do anything, or are we just at the mercy of whatever? These are some of the thoughts that come through as I continue to exist, and as I pay attention to the patterns of how people are changing, even from a distance, people watching is still my jam, even if I can't always understand them. Over the course of this, I watch those who are letting fear completely control them, and also those who are hell-bent on maintaining their normal life, consequences be damned. I do go through stages where I question what the hell is wrong with some people, as we all do, regardless of our opinions of things. Of course we don't want to judge, or some of us anyway, but that aspect of our hardwiring is still present. We are still human, and we're naturally going to have human responses, even if they don't really serve us much other than distracting us from the stuff we can't control and the stuff we don't really want to deal with. As I'm writing my way through this, it's clicking to me that with the loss of control and the loss of life as we knew it, aren't we all grieving this in our own ways? These are deaths to our experience, our livelihood, our identity, and many other aspects of our lives. Why wouldn't we process this as though we were grieving a death? Because that's exactly what's happening. Let's explore this using the five stages of grief as described by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and see where things fit. I suspect most reading are aware of them, but allow me to list them just to level the field. And I do want to note that these do not necessarily have to go in order. Number one, denial. Number two, anger. Number three, bargaining. Number four, depression. Number five, acceptance. Stage one, denial. There are a significant amount still out there carrying the mentality of, fuck this, life goes on. Doesn't serve much to lash out at them because it doesn't do anything more than generate more tension. Instead, I studied and tried to grasp why some are openly defying the obvious. This is clearly denial stage, and if you pretend like the loss is not a thing, then you don't have to actually address it. I was trying to sneak out somewhere to at least take a walk the other day, as it's been an issue getting any exercise with the gym shut down. I thought maybe a local beach with some decent trails would be the way to go. Except I realized when I arrived that it was most definitely not. The lot was packed like you would have expected on a Saturday in July, filled with boaters, fishers, and, believe it or not, partiers drinking around the lot. Six feet of separation? <laughs> nope, not here. I didn't even bother getting out of the car because heaven only knows what I could be carrying back with me and I'd really love to not be that guy if possible. Let me add a note there. At the time, there was still a lot of uncertainty as to what it really was, what was happening, and I knew I had someone that was at high risk at home and I didn't want to take that risk. But that's how it still is in a lot of situations, ignoring the situation at hand as I go back to the reading. Pretending just like it's another day. I hope that they don't inflict unnecessary casualties on others in the process while keeping their blinders on. Stage two, anger. Anger towards so many things, people, concepts, etc. Being told what to do, being told no. Anger toward those who refuse to follow orders and guidelines. Anger toward the grocery store hoarders, while in turn they feel the same towards those who call them out. Anger toward politicians and other leaders for their lack of leadership or perceived overshooting of their powers. Anger at the media for being responsible for causing whatever is pissing whatever off that day. Anger is everywhere. Look at social media. You can't go three posts without someone being pissed about something. Something to consider when it comes to processing all of it or attempting to avoid it. If that's the way you go, good luck with that. 
Anger comes from fear. Fear creates anger. Anger is often the go-to for how we express fear. For many, it's how we were hardwired. Fear is a thing. Fear exists. It doesn't matter how much you don't do fear. You're just lying to yourself. We all do. We are allowed to express anger and feel safer doing so than to do the same with the fear that is creating the emotion in the first place. In many circles still, it brings shame and ridicule, especially for men, to just admit that they're scared. This is, of course, bullshit and needs to stop. Unfortunately, it's going to take a while to get there. You can make a case that we're even going backwards at this point. But anyway, we still live in a world where quarantine jokes are still made about women reevaluating what they should be looking for in their men, such as being able to hint over how they look in skinny jeans. I could go on for pages about toxic masculinity. In fact, I did in a book once. But I need to walk this back to the point. This mindset is what leads to expressing anger as being more socially acceptable than the underlying fear. This may escalate down the road if things continue to grow more dire. This is one worry of mine. That one seemed to come true. I really would have liked to have been wrong about that. Moving on. Stage three, bargaining. This is the stage where we start digging deep into our bags of tricks and throwing whatever against the wall in the hopes that anything can stick that can bring back any semblance of what was. You see it in action currently in several different ways. One such example is the hoarding, even if that doesn't make sense on its face. What's happening is a desperate attempt to maintain control of something, anything. Even if control meanings enough toilet paper to last until 2049. It's something. You see it in people trying to offer whatever services they can as well. Revisiting skills they haven't touched in 20 years or trying to monetize hobbies. For some, it's trying to sell stuff out of the house, MLM or otherwise. We for now still live in a society dependent on credit and it gets terrifying when the funds dry up and mortgages and loan payments still loom. The consequences of failing to make the payments are terrifying. Repossessions and foreclosures are no joke. They bring shame and embarrassment along with the perception of carrying that stigma like it's a scarlet A. I also see folks in healthcare and related fields in this bargaining arena. For instance, there's already a shortage imminent of the equipment they need to protect themselves so they can continue to provide care without endangering themselves and their families in the process. In desperation, they're using bandanas, sewing together their own masks, improvising gear, and hoping for the best with what's coming. There's so much wrong with this picture, and yet, here we are. Stage 4. Depression. This is the stage that really scares me. Almost all of us are swimming around in the previous three stages. Eventually... There will come a point where things will be so obvious they can't be denied. We'll be so tired from playing out the fear in the guise of anger that we'll just be unable to keep it going. We'll have run out of shit to desperately throw out there to make something, anything work. After spending a lot of time contained at home, what's that like? Is it truly a safe environment? There are more than we know that are trapped in a pit of abuse in many forms. There's only so much that one can ultimately take. There are other situations where people are forced to face that the life they chose because of expectations is a life that has vanished. At that point, it's going to be down to us, alone, contained, with no idea what the hell comes next. This is the point where we have to look inward, to face everything we've buried, ignored, denied over the course of our existence. There's going to be a lot of pain, sadness, anxiety, uncertainty, and absolutely nowhere to deflect it. The dark night of the soul. These can really screw us up. A lot of us have already been there, at least partially. Others have never acknowledged this directly. We're going to need a lot of support to get through this. But are we going to even know how to ask for it? Or where to ask? Is anyone even going to be there to answer? I understand that there may be more pressing things imminently, but this needs to be discussed so much more than it is. Because once you really get into the teeth of whatever the hell this is you're very likely to see a mental health crisis we haven't experienced. If the help can't come, what comes next? You think the suicide rate is horrible now, and it is. Wait till people really start having their external identities ripped away and they're face-to-face -face with their demons, with no help. Talk about having zero control. This is a dark journey from which there is absolutely none. Many may try to escape the inescapable rather than keep going and work through it. There's hope on the other side. However... 
I really worry about how many may choose whatever means they have to escape before they get there. God, I hope I'm wrong. Stage 5, Acceptance. This is the point where we've gone through the hell and come out the other side. This is where we've grown able to surrender the control we fought for in the first three stages and work through all the pain involved with achieving that surrender. Acceptance is a duality, where the old stories are no longer useful or even needed. In acceptance, there is a peace with knowing that the break has been made and all of the weight, expectations, and judgments have been removed. Additionally, Acceptance brings with it a gigantic blank space. It's the great undiscovered country. With that does come uncertainty, but after the first four stages, we've grown more accustomed to that. What it also brings is unlimited opportunities. It's the ultimate reset button. We get to create our next chapter. We can make the rules and also break them and make new ones. We get to generate our own joy and know we have permission to do so in whatever way calls to us. Not that we ever needed permission in the first place. Some storms are particularly brutal. They can bring down so much destruction and cause so much pain and instill intense fears. In the midst of these storms, it can feel like eternal hell. But even the harshest, most devastating of storms eventually moves away. They all do. It's jarring to see everything leveled at first. But with that clearing comes opportunity once we become open to it. The other thing that comes from the devastation is the rebuild. When rebuilding, instead of being restricted by the structures that were in place before the storm, there is the freedom to build however that calls to us. It can take any form that feels right. Additionally, the lessons learned in the process can guide us in how to rebuild the foundation so that when the next storm inevitably comes, it will be much more likely that the building will hold up to it. I am not going to pretend to know what is coming next or what this stage may look like for anyone. It's impossible to know until we've walked the paths needed to get there. One more caveat is that us humans are pretty damn resilient, even if we're convinced otherwise. We are brighter, more creative, and more adaptable than we often credit ourselves with. And with a reset and an open field to play with, it could be amazing to see what comes from this. I get it. Most aren't ready to embrace this at all because we're still scrapping, clawing, and fighting to hold on to what we know. We have to do what we need to right now, feel what we need to, and experience this in our own way. I just ask that no matter how painful or intense life becomes, to please continue to stay with it. Just stay in the room, however you need to do that, and no matter how hard it becomes to simply do that in the days ahead. I promise this will all pass. All storms do. I will say that last stage, the acceptance, that didn't really come forward as would have expected. We're still fighting pretty hard to hold on to the illusion of normal, and I guess we're going to see in time where that plays out. It's clear it hasn't completely returned to normal, and most likely never will. There's a lot of loss that we're not going to be able to ignore that's come from this. There's elements of the way of life. For many, there's loss of loved ones. What's the number? I know here in the States, it's close to a million. There's a lot of people that got sick and are not the same, are not the people they used to be physically, mentally, emotionally. And yeah, the mental health issue is very much a thing. There are a lot of people struggling with a lot of different things. It may present itself as a bunch of angry people incapable of accepting the word no, but we got to dig deeper and understand why and do what we need to do to keep ourselves safe, of course, but maybe a little more empathy would get us a little further. I don't know the answer as far as what comes next. I'm not going to pretend to even try. I can tell you this isn't working. At least accepting that and going from there is what we need and we'll see if we can figure that out anyway as i move on it's an old piece of mine called grieving our control and it's on my medium page the link will be in the show notes i'm gonna pull out a piece that i did find that was pretty powerful to read and i found it on a website called lifewiththefrog.com and their collection of Greece stories. And this is called The Letter She Will Never Read. 
my dear friend. It's been a long while now since the last time I saw your face. It seems like forever since I've heard your infectious laugh, seen the smile that could light up everyone around you. You were here, and then you weren't. And it all happened so suddenly that we were all in shock for quite a long time about it. The questions began almost immediately, but none of them would ever have answers. Not the kind of answers that would ever satisfy what we felt we needed. Nothing would ever be enough of a reason for why we had to lose you the way we did when we did. Death has a way of asking more questions than answering them. There is a day that I will forever remember as the moment that I had a chance to reach out more than I allowed. That day haunts me still, and I know that if you were here, you would be the first to tell me that there wasn't anything I could have done or said that day that would have changed things, though there is a piece of my heart that would give anything for that moment back. We stood at the edge of the grassy field that morning, just you and I. You'd guided me to the place we ended up, and there was an urgency to what you needed to tell me. The weather was unseasonably cold. The wind was bitter. You were wearing a heavy coat and scarf tied up around your neck. You looked into my eyes, you looked into my soul, and at that moment I knew. I knew that you knew the pain that I knew. I knew that there was a piece of the story that wasn't sliding out effortlessly. I knew that there was something you were holding back, and I knew it because I knew. I knew it because we were in this very similar place together. But neither of us wanted to admit it. And in that moment, neither of us could reach out to the other one. I'm here now, and you're gone, and there is nothing about it that makes sense. Life is not fair. No one ever claimed that it was supposed to be, but this much is true. It is so much more unfair to some of us, though, and... Those of us who have been in that place where you and I were that morning can see it now in someone else. No matter how hard we try to push it away and pretend like everything is fine. It wasn't fine, and I knew. But I didn't say anything. There was a gut instinct that morning that reached into my heart and told me to show you that I understood. That urged me to open up and let you in. That wanted more than anything to assure you that I was a safe place that wanted to tell you that there were things that I could relate to in a way that few others could. Then there was that shame inside me that held it in that made me stop. It wasn't that I didn't trust you to open up. I didn't trust myself. I wasn't there yet. I am now, but it's too late. I'm still here and you're gone. I miss you. I miss your laugh and your smile and the energy that oozed from your person in such a rare way that I haven't seen it since. You taught me many things while you were here, but the last of those lessons was the greatest of them all. It is this. I will never hold back my emotions, my empathy, my love for someone else again. I will not let shame keep me from telling my stories. I will not ignore that urge in my heart to open up to the person who may need to hear it the most. I will not. I just wish, oh how I wish, that I learned that lesson sooner. I know that you'll never read this letter. Not really, anyway. The finality of death assures me of this truth. Maybe, just maybe, there is a way that this message can find its way to you out there somewhere. I'm sorry. I failed you as a friend when you needed me the most, and I failed you because I was ashamed of something I didn't even do. I carry regret for the words that went unspoken. My solemn vow to you is that it will never happen again. I love you, and I miss you. Love, Kelly. Again, it comes from a site called Kissing the Frog, and it's called The Letter She Will Never Read, and this will be in the show notes as well. I'm going to share a piece that I found in a website called Grief and Sympathy. The author is a Morgan Webb, talking about the loss of a partner and how she needed time for grief, to find the stillness, to face the sadness. And the article is called The Influence of Time on Grief, Thoughts on Grieving the Loss of a Partner. I am sitting on the porch. The wind chimes fill the air with their quiet music. The breeze is cold on the tear tracks running down my cheeks. I feel my knees on the yoga mat beneath me. 
The pine leaves dance in the wind. I focus on my breath, fighting the stillness in that natural moment. That rhythm is always there, giving me something to come back to when I start to lose myself in my grief. This is the hardest part for me, giving myself space to find stillness. I'm doing well these days. It's been eight months since I lost him. I'm happy most of the time, but most of the time I'm running around, juggling a million things. It's easier to be happy when I'm busy, when I can channel my energy into building my new life. It's in the stillness that I remember he's gone, that I can feel the lump of sadness I still carry within me. I'm starting to make peace with that. The grief is still there, but it's less violent than it once was. I still cry some days, but not every day, not for hours at a time. There is still a sadness, but it no longer feels like everything that I am. I'm starting to make peace with the fact that the heart heals just slowly. So many times I thought I was fine, thought that I had cried all my tears, that I was finally happy again, and then I'd hear a song or do something we always used to do together, and it would all hit me again. Maybe a little better, but still there. I was starting to get so tired of it, I just wanted to stop crying. Stop thinking that I was better, and then finding myself sitting tearfully in another parking lot. I felt frustrated that I wasn't over it yet. So many people in my life seemed to think I should be. I just wanted it to be over. I wanted to feel normal again. I wanted there to not be songs that could reduce me to tears. And I felt frustrated with myself for not living up to those desires. It was around the fourth time that I mentally declared myself over it. And then found myself crying once again that I realized I needed to let go of the idea of over it entirely. It was not helping me recover. On the contrary, it was making me feel angry with myself for still being upset. It was making me feel bad for feeling bad, a negative loop that wasn't moving me any closer to happiness. My heart is healing. I'm doing so much better now than I was a few months ago. I've stopped filling all my time to avoid thinking about missing him. I take in a deep breath. I feel the pain in my heart, but I feel the cold air filling my lungs as well. Breathing in, I find the stillness. I give myself permission to be wherever I am today. Breathing out, I remember how lucky I am to be alive. Breathing in, I feel the truth of my heart. I remember that I miss him. I remember that it's okay to miss him. Breathing out, I remember that time moves on, that I am healing, that... I have never felt this before, so I can't expect to know how much time it will take. I feel the breeze ruffle my hair. I hear my nephew's laughter coming from inside and know that my moment of peace will soon be over. I am deeply, deeply happy. I am deeply, deeply sad. It's okay for the two to coexist. They don't need to war within me. I can love them both. And again, it is from grief and sympathy and the title is influence of time on grief and this one also from grief and sympathy this is called finding joy after grief moving on after tragedy showing the author's name is wendy some people will tell you that life is a fairy tale others will say life is a nightmare however i agree with the wonderful american satirist tom lehrer who said that life is like a sewer. What you get out of it depends on what you put in it. I went through a difficult time when my husband was dying of a malignant brain tumor. I wondered why it had to happen to such a wonderful man. I wondered what we had done as a couple to deserve such agony. When I lost a breast to cancer, six months after my husband's death, I had no energy to waste on asking unanswerable questions. So I decided that shit happens. There is no rhyme or reason, no great plan, no secret agenda, shit happens. We have little or no control over these events and have no way of predicting or understanding them. During that five-year period, I lost my husband, a breast, my father, and eight good friends. However, throughout that time, I also gained much personal strength, more self-awareness, and increased ability to see the joy of life. It seems trite, but after grief, you do see the beauty of everyday things like a sunset, 
seasonal changes, a child's progress with increased intensity that is amazing. You realize how vital friends and family are, how unimportant material things are unless they help you achieve joy. My mother is 94 years old, but pretty fit and healthy. We had lost my father a year earlier. They had been together since she was 14. We expected her to give up, but quite to the contrary, she decided she wanted to fly from Newcastle in UK to Atlanta in Georgia, USA to meet her great-grandchildren for the first time. While she would pay for herself, she decided I would act as travel agent and tour guide. What could I say to the woman who gave me life? The dates were set. I arrived in London Heathrow and transferred to Terminal 5 on its opening day. What chaos. My hour stopover turned into seven hours. My luggage arrived a week later and was so wet and smelly, much of my clothing had to be thrown away. Then my mother had a fall and we had to postpone the fight to Atlanta. As I had to stay and take care of her... I missed my trip to see the Masters Golf Tournament in nearby Augusta. Then, to crown it all, eight inches of snow fell. Talk about shit happens. Luckily, I could fit into my mother's snow boots and heavy jacket. As I trudged to the shops, I was too scared to risk driving. I remembered how beautiful falling snow is. I recalled the gentle blanket effect it had, muffling traffic noises. I felt again the tingling in my nose, the crisp air, waves in the snowdrifts. I remembered fun in the snow as a child with family and friends. I remembered the joy. My mother felt unable to travel, and so we spent time together just hanging out. We talked. I met more of her friends. I joined her in her life. I'd never had this opportunity before. After a while, she insisted I leave her and continue my trip. We put the tickets on hold for when she was fit again. I had been in Atlanta two weeks when my mother telephoned and told me how she was now fit to travel. What could I do? I went back to get her. Anticipating chaos at Heathrow, awful weather, stress, the cost of another airline ticket, feeling far from positive, I set out. We had a seamless trip. Indeed, it was easier traveling with my mother in a wheelchair than it usually was. The service was wonderful. We finally arrived at the Atlanta house and opened the door. My mother was instantly engulfed by her great-grandchildren squealing with delight. She burst into tears. I burst into tears. My niece, their mother, burst into tears. My niece's husband burst into tears. After a while, a voice behind me said, Where shall I put the luggage, ma'am? There was our taxi driver, a complete stranger, standing with tears pouring down his face. He was joining in the joy of our special moment. Shit happens, but do not let it get you down. You can find joy everywhere if you look closely, even after enduring the most unimaginable grief. You can make it happen if you try hard enough. And this one was called Finding Joy After Grief, Moving On After Tragedy. This will be in the show notes as well. So I'm going to read a piece that I wrote about five years ago now, around the anniversary of my mom's passing, which is again coming up. It's going to be 12 years on the 21st. The last few days, I've honestly not been in the greatest space. I've been irritable, just trying to be left alone. Part of me feels the need to reach out to friends, but I end up stopping myself for whatever reason. I was doing okay until recently, but something hasn't been right. I needed to figure out what exactly. And then I looked at the calendar. Oh yeah, the anniversary of my mom's passing is coming up. Seven years on Friday. That would do it. That void is always there. It never leaves, and it never will. You just learn to adapt to it. I have to admit something that's been gnawing at me for years. When we were making the funeral service arrangements, we were asked about a eulogy, in particular if one of us would do it. I really wanted to, but I declined. I was afraid it would give me one final way to disappoint her, so we gave some information to a local minister that did the service and rolled with it. Nice guy. Did as good a job as could be expected with what we gave him. But he didn't know her. 
little side note here. There was only one person that would have been a perfect fit for the job, and that would have been our minister from when we were growing up. But he moved out west and went off the grid, so that wasn't going to be an option. I don't know if this will work, and I may not know until after I've finished, but let me at least take a crack at trying. Seven years too late. Mom grew up in Taunton, in Massachusetts, in the 1950s and 60s. Her upbringing was pretty tough. She had quite over-demanding parents that felt she could never satisfy them no matter what she did. She was always the good girl, always getting high grades, working in her father's convenience store from the time she was like eight or nine, being responsible for her little sister and so forth. She never had a real taste of freedom until she went to what was then known as Southeastern Massachusetts University, these days known as UMass Dartmouth. She was there in the late 60s and early 70s. She had an apartment in neighboring Westport with some friends, and she got very involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement, which ran pretty hot on campus as the chancellor there was very pro-war, and it was a constant battle between the administration and protesting students. As far as I know, she never got arrested, but from what I hear, things still got interesting. She was working in a store in what was at the time a brand new mall, and what she never told us was for that little bit of time, she finally learned to relax a little bit and start to party and enjoy herself, which was very different from the mom I knew. And the only reason I knew that is because there was a teacher in my high school my senior year that was friends with her back at SMU. And every so often, I'd be at my locker and I'd hear his booming voice yell out my last name and... He'd pull me aside and tell me another funny story about mom. It was awesome to know that there was that side of her because we rarely saw it. She never did finish school. She ended up going, I think she got overwhelmed by the freedom she had going from zero to everything. And school fell by the wayside. It happened to me, so I can definitely relate. My grandfather had passed away not long before that, and my grandmother remarried, and it was a tough situation for her. Bless Graham's soul, but the reality is she was a very difficult woman who more than likely lived life with undiagnosed mental health and possibly trauma issues, and it really sabotaged any quality of life she would have had. And her demeanor did show it. And then along the way, my dad showed up, who was her polar opposite in just about every way. So, uh, of course, they were set up on a blind date and then married like three months later, which, if you knew either of them, was really quite out of character. But people do things out of character when it feels like an escape, so it makes sense. Mom had a rough go of it those first few years of marriage, and it did take a toll. I suspect it landed far different than what her dreams were. I can't imagine that not sucking, to be honest. She had rough deliveries with each of us. Not long after I was born, her sister was hit by a car and was permanently bedridden after that, unable to communicate or do anything for herself for the rest of her life. Not long after my brother was born, dad got really sick with pneumonia to the point where a priest gave him his last rites. That's a lot for anyone to handle in a fairly short amount of time. She did try to make something of it, though, with what she had. She dove fully into the animal rights movement, even going on radio shows and setting up sign-up tables in the mall to protest baby seal hunts in Canada, among other causes. If you knew her, it was very much out of her comfort zone. And she was always involved with one organization or another. And sometimes she would send educational material with us to school for our teachers to use. And truth is, they are probably still hidden in assorted school closets all these years later. <laughs> Every time I would tell her this, I'd get dirty looks. I loved when she would do radio, and occasionally I'd get to go, and I became fascinated with the whole process and meeting the talent. And they got a kick out of us, which I thought was really neat. I mean, we were adorable little children once. 
And around this time, she started to bring us to a local congregational church every Sunday. And it was there we made a number of lifelong family friends. Mom was a church deacon and was also a chair of the community outreach for the church. And she was also in charge of the Sunday school for many years. Still to this day, I hear about the impact she had on kids as a Sunday school teacher. No matter how different we all became as kids as adults, Mom later got involved in local politics. It started when she joined a group protesting the installment of a radio tower at the end of our street. And she continued to stay involved for a few years. And thankfully, she never ran for anything. But she'd end up on committees and worked on a number of town elections. Looking back, for a quiet woman, she really did have a lot of impact on the community around her. I'm not sure she ever truly realized that. Everything blew apart when my parents separated and then divorced. This would have been when I was 17. Suddenly, mom didn't have time to do all this other activity. She had to find a job, sometimes multiple jobs. She did bounce from one thing to another for a while. She worked in a toy store until it closed and a convenience store, where I'd found out later in life that she'd been held up and never told us. Thankfully, she got herself into a social services training program. And she got a job at the special ed school where she completed her internship, working with older kids for a few years, and she truly loved it. At this time, she also went back and finished that degree that she had left behind earlier. After that, she finally went to where her heart fully was, working with battered women and their children, working in a women's shelter and becoming a child advocate, where she worked right up through the end of her life. Of all the things she had done, this really was her true calling. She was amazing with the clients and their kids and the staff that she worked with truly became like a second family to her. In a lot of ways, they were her outlet when she'd get frustrated with us. We could be frustrating. It is what it is. All of us can be. Her favorite role, though, was that of Grammy. The two greatest moments in her life were the births of my niece and my nephew. And she was just head over heels in love with her grandbabies and... This was the thing that made her the happiest, period. It was amazing to watch. It really was. In her off time, she did enjoy TV. She would watch Days of Our Lives and Another World when we were younger, and also All in the Family, Maude, The Jeffersons, Little House on the Prairie, and later Murphy Brown, St. Elsewhere, Star Trek. She'd watch all of them. Her favorite was The Next Generation. Babylon 5, oh, Stargate... And there were others. In her final years, she watched Jon Stewart, Everyone Loves Raymond, The George Lopez Show. Growing up, Mom hated sports. All of them. On TV, if one of us was playing, it didn't matter. So, I have to admit that in her final years, it made me pretty proud when she actually started to watch baseball with us. But not only that, she really started to get into it. And she'd watch the Red Sox when... We weren't there as well. I mean, I think Pedro Martinez, Manny Ramirez, and David Ortiz had something to do with it as well. But it's a funny story about that. I had come into the house from doing something. It was a Red Sox-Yankees game on Fox. This was in 2004, the summer before they won the World Series. And it was right when the famous Jason Varitek, Alex Rodriguez brawl was happening. If you don't know what that is, look it up. It's easy to find Mom looks at me confused, and she's just like, what are they doing? And I had to explain a baseball fight to her as much as I could. They're really, you'd have to watch them. To, they're, these, they're weird animals. Eventually, they broke up, and they started playing again. And one of the announcers, uh, Tim McCarver, who might as well have been wearing a Yankees hat at the broadcast booth, which I still will never forgive him for. one point, he actually called Varitek, the Red Sox catcher, a thug for starting it. Which, I mean, he technically did, but A-Rod had it coming. All of a sudden, my usually soft-spoken mother, who I might have heard use the F word maybe five times, maybe, just looked up and screamed, fuck you, at the TV. And I swear this happened and nobody believes me. Which makes sense if somebody told me that happened. I probably wouldn't believe them. Except I saw it and it happened. Oh man. I miss her just as much today as I did then. She was only 59 when we lost her, which was way too young. She had so much to do that she never had the opportunity to experience. 
it's such a shame that her body wouldn't let her. Again, she really did make an impact, even if just a small way, in a short time, on the world around her. And she left this world a little better place than she found it. Which, that's the goal of this whole life thing, isn't it? Maybe. I don't know. To each their own, I guess. This was probably the eulogy that I should have written. I don't know if it was worthy, but it was my best shot. Hopefully, somewhere out there, Mom approves. I'd like to thank you for taking your time and taking a listen to some of what was being offered. I hope that in however way it needed to happen, you as a listener felt at least a little bit seen in some way, shape, or form. And if you're someone who's really struggling with getting through the loss of a dear one, and you, not anyone else, you feel like it's really an obstacle in going forward, please reach out and get some assistance with working through what you need to. Go find the support that you need because you deserve to have that. We all do. So please remember that. Again, the links to everything I shared will be below in the show notes, as well as ways to connect with me either on social media, through email. If you feel really moved through listening and you want to donate, there's links for that as well. Again, I really appreciate you spending your time with me and giving this a listen. I'd like to invite you to subscribe on the platform you're using. And if this really lands for you, I'd love for you to share it with somebody else. And with that, we're going to wind this down. Take care and be safe and be well. I would like to dedicate this episode of Legion of Misfits to Sandra Levesque. Still miss you down here, Mom. The intent and purpose of this and all episodes is simply to inform and offer ideas and possibilities for further exploration by the listener on their own time. Nothing said is to be taken as medical or any other professional advice. Please consult with your service providers, your medical and mental health professionals before trying anything you may hear on this or any other program. Legion of Misfits, the host, or any platforms or any resources used do not acknowledge responsibility for any contrary actions taken by any listener. Copyright 2022, Legion of Misfits, all rights reserved.